Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Good to see everyone. Sorry we got a little bit of a late start um, today. But there was um, one piece of the episode I thought was, I mean, there was a lot that was interesting in this episode, but one piece that I thought was, um, maybe it was because I was already thinking about it related to the time of year in Slichot, which is sort of intercessionary prayer, um, you know, sort of, so during Slichot, which we don't actually start yet, but I taught about them last week, so I feel like I'm in Slichot mode. Um, the end of Slichot, but if we were sorry, we would be saying them at this point. You know, um, you know, at the end of Slichot, there's a section where we talk about, you know, machni se'irachami, machni se'irachami, lifnei balarachami, right? Uh, sort of those who enter in compassion bring compassion before the master of compassion. I, you know, the way we understand it is we're asking basically angels um, to intercede on our behalf before God. And I was thinking about that in light of the scene of Roe praying at, some grave of a tzaddik. It's a, I mean, we don't know who, but basically... It's probably pregnant. Moshe or Aharon because it said Moshe ve'aharon bechoanav on it. Wait. That's just a quoting a pasuk. No, I think that's that's what's on there. I mean, yes, it is quoting a pasuk, but I believe that on... I forget which one of their graves. I can look it up right now while you're still there talking. There is no grave of Moshe or Aharon. I, th- I think that there's not like a, I mean, we don't necessarily believe we don't know, that we know exactly buried. where they live, but I mean, where they live, <laughs> where they're buried. Um, but I do believe there is a place in Israel that you can go that's like emblematic of, of their death. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm, I can look it up, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. I thought okay. it was, I thought it was a tomb, not a cemetery. Well, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. That's I'll look it up while you talk. Look it up because that seems very strange to me. But okay. there's lots of strange things. No, I mean, often there's psukim that, I mean, I would not be surprised if it was someone named Moshe or Aaron or Shmuel. But, that, you know, um, anyway, but but that idea of just the people quoted the past. Um, you know, but I, that idea, especially in Israel, we see it frequently of, of sort of like going to graves and praying, um, you know, and there's certain di- different righteous people who are so often associated with certain miracles and it's like oh if you don't want to have a miscarriage or you know you go to this grave and if you want to get pregnant you go to this grave if you want to shit off you go to this grave right there's like this whole almost like a cottage industry around praying at the graves of tzaddikim and um yeah, there was a big covering of sorts, right? But it, it was like a like a tomb, and they you know they have often like these graves are sort of a big tomb, it's like a, a building, and you know you go inside the building and you pray there, and you know they even had a men's section and a women's section and so forth, um, right? And these very much exist in in, in Israel um, for you know certain you know I mean often big rabbis or or just you know people like that, and. Um, I don't know, for me, I think that idea, uh, right, it's one thing that we talk about how Judaism is different than other faiths who share some roots with us. Is like, oh, no, but we don't have inter, we don't do the whole intercession thing. Like, we don't pray through intermediaries. We don't, um, you know, and, and yet then we have this desire of people when they're really, you know, want to pray on uh, on, on behalf of like a very 
particular, um, you know, miracle or a very particular cause of like going to these particular sites, which is complicated, I think, Jewishly. And so we sort of wanted to bring that up. And, and I mean, here, for one thing, if people have experiences of going or knowing people who went to certain gravestones like this, and um, I mean, and just kind of talking about this as, I mean, you can talk, look at it from a halakhic lens, but you could also just look from a desire to connect lens um, of that, of like, so do you have praying, praying at graves? Rabbi Shatz, have you ever prayed at a grave before? Or Mara Machila, probably. I'm in the middle of work of looking all these things up. Okay, first of all, I can answer your question though. Um, first of all, it was definitely not Moshe or Aharon whose tomb he was visiting because they are in the West Bank and in Jordan. And so my guess is that that's, he didn't travel all the way there. Um, and it also, based on the picture that I'm looking at, it's, that's not at least the visual that they gave us in the, um, in the episode. So I don't know which grave or tomb they were at. Um, I'm surprised. Well, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, have I ever, have I ever prayed at a, so we went to, um, we went to, uh, Hebron when I was in rabbinical school studying in Israel. And I don't remember having, we might've davened near a tomb but i didn't like go to pray specifically at a tomb um it didn't speak to me well that's a very complicated question so oh they were you think they were in jerusalem yeah maybe i yeah who i don't i don't really know um but when we went to Hebron, one of the things that you see is you you see people going to these different matriarchs, patriarchs based on like a, a value that they had or a trait or um, something that their character kind of shared with us or taught us as a quality and that you would pray to that, again, matriarch or patriarch for that particular thing. So whether that's fertility or kindness or hachnasat orchim or, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, sorry, hachnasat orchim, um, uh, like bringing guests into your home, uh, like being welcoming, right? Different things that you might, that you might be asking to have a little bit more of in your own practice or something that you really want, like having a baby or finding a spouse. You all, you often see, um, women specifically, I don't know about men, but women specifically go, um, to, to Keva Rachel for both fertility and to find, um, to find, to hopefully find a spouse. Um, the, have I ever prayed at a tomb or a grave? No. Well, I mean, Mara Ish. Yeah, but I don't. I didn't like pray for me. I can I we davened. I think mincha, like in the mm-hmm. machitza section of Marada Machpila. But I don't. I don't like. I didn't personally feel like I was giving like Rebecca Schatz prayers towards towards anything. I will say very um, interestingly that today, after or before doing this funeral that I did, 
I was, because it was in Simi Valley and I'm not there very often, my uncle was buried in Simi Valley and I hadn't actually been back since he was buried. And so I went to his grave and this has been a very difficult week uh, for me, for many rabbis in terms of just like what's happening with high holidays and all those kinds of things. And there's been lots of stress and lots of angst and whatever. And I went to go see his grave, not thinking that it would be any kind of uh, prayerful experience, but definitely brought me a lot of calm and made me feel, uh, I don't know, like supported in a different way. So it wasn't prayer, but I do think that people go to different grave sites or people that they knew or even maybe didn't know to be able to, to have those kinds of experiences, um, whether it's asking for something or just feeling something. Does that answer your question? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at the the chats here. Um, no, I think I mean it does. I think I mean so Barbara points out that they were at Shmuel's grave, the prophet. Which like I said I remember when I was in Israel being at Shmuel's grave, and that kind of did look familiar to me. So which would make sense with Vishmuel Bekorashim out from that verse, right? Um, so you know, it's interesting to think about. Miscarriage. I mean, I don't know if there's a connection specifically with Shmuel and, and miscarriage, but I think there's also a difference, you know, when Rabbi Shatz, you're talking about, you know, praying or not even praying, just visiting the grief of a relative right, versus right. someone who you don't know, but you sort of have this, right? They're sort of seen as an exemplar of certain qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before about, um, you know, in the Catholic tradition and, and I mean, probably other Christian traditions as well about like saints and like, are you praying to a saint or is a saint a representative or a, a paradigm of certain attributes? You you know, there's like that complicated factor. I think even you know, in this season where we, this time where we, you know, there's a tradition of Kever Avot, of going to a cemetery right before Shoshana, which I imagine is connected in some way to, um, to Rosh Hashanah, to sort of not asking them per se to pray for us, but somehow sort of having their, you know, our relatives, their merits sort of help us as we head into the high holiday season. So there's an element of that that I think is, you know, makes its way into Judaism, even if we're not actively going to graves to pray there, mm-hmm. um, that there, there is some element of that that's kind of held on to, um, I think there's also, you know, in some ways a discomfort because of the ways that it can be misinterpreted and misunderstood by people who are, are, um, you know, who are doing so. To Renee's question is Haram Eirona. We said, yeah, that's uh, Shimon Bar Yochai, who that, you know, his yurt site is uh, by tradition is on Lagba Omer. And so you go to Meiron on Lagba Omer because that's, you know, Shimon Bar Yochai's place and obviously there was a tragedy there this year but but you, you know there's that sense of like a power of connection with this person um that i think that one of the challenges of judaism is that we have a god who we can't see and right like we, you know how you it's hard to have that direct connection that direct line so it, it makes it easier right it's no no, it makes sense why Christianity caught on. It's really nice to have a person you can look at and be like, ah, that's the person I'm praying through or to or whatever, as opposed to a God that we can't see and hear and feel and so forth. 
It's a complicated religion. Yeah, Renee. I think it's also similar to the certain sects that believe in um, in like certain rabbis and like going to high rabbis. Totally. Remember when I, my brother was sick, someone sent me to um, speak to some rebbe in 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 like an area of Israel that was in some holy place and. Yeah, so just believing in, and those people that believe in going for brachot, yeah. certain and yeah. just reminded me of that. We did, we did my son's haircutting when he turned three at Marone, and it was, it was a very hmm. enlightening experience to do that. It did, it made you feel like you were in a holy of holies. Hmm. Well. Yeah, we can think this is like a conversation I had a number of times, you know, in my Chavruta with the, one of the Chabad rabbis here, because that's, you know, in Chabad, right, 770, the, you know, well, 770 was one place, but but the uh, the Ohel, the, the grave tent structure building of, uh, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, right, is people go there all the time, and they put notes in there, and they get messages, you know, they, there's, all, right, there's a whole thing around around that. And I think, you know, the question becomes, okay, at what point does this begin to transition into something that's like, eh, you know, like, where does that go? Cultish. So this is a, to what? Cultish. Well, cultish, but also like, how do you think Christianity developed? There was a rabbi who everyone really liked and respected and they were, you know, and then, and then he, you know, they say even after he died, we're still seeing him as someone who is sort of, superhuman in certain ways and then he becomes a messiah and then he becomes god and then like right, that's how religions develop that's how legends develop so um so there's a danger there of like because when you are a person who knew an individual and then you try to share to the next generations about this person who they didn't get to know and then they share to their next generation, you know, and so the people who didn't even know them share to, right? So the story is going to be embellished because that's what happens because otherwise, how do you portray, how do you convey to this next generation why, how, how special this person was? But there's a danger, of course, and that, the, you know, sort of the way the legend grows and that it's, you know, it's not enough for someone to be the Messiah. It's, you know, you know, like you sort I mean, you see that over the years, over the decades, you know, Obama Trevi died 20 years, something years ago. Um, I forget how more than that, 30 something years ago. But, but um, you know, like that sort of a nature of humanity is to sort of to look at people in a certain way to to put all of this faith into humanity, which God is like, no, don't do that. Like, just come to me. I can handle it for you. Um, but it's really hard. Like we struggle with that. And even going back to the times of the Talmud, people would go to the cemeteries to pray. Right? There's a, there's a Midrash that I brought earlier about Caleb when he's going up to Israel with the spies, stopping at Marad Pelah to um, pray at the, you know, to pray at the graves there because he knows that the spies are going to give a bad report. So, and that's, a, you know, a story that's in the Talmud. So this is not something that's new. I think it speaks to a very human desire to be able to sort of connect with something that's more animate, or at least was animate, but it can be dangerous as well. I think, I mean, I think that one of the things that we do, and this is <laughs> such an interesting topic to do at the end of a day where you've also had a funeral, I think one of the most interesting pieces of a Jewish funeral is that you go from real focus on the deceased to focus on the living, 
by the time you leave a funeral, a Jewish funeral, you're focused on the living, not on the dead, right? You do Kaddish, you say Hamakom Yenachem as they're leaving through the lines, right? You do, all of those different pieces are now your focus is towards the living. And even when we do like Amisha Berach or when you say Yisker or any of those things, though they're bringing to mind someone who you've lost or someone who is sick, it's really about, and I say this about Misha Berach all the time, it's not just about you saying the person's name so that the rabbi can say that person's name and somehow the rabbi is going to have more of a connection to God for that person to find healing. You might very well believe in that, which is your prerogative. And I think that part of Amisha Berach is for the person sitting next to you or the person behind you to know that you're thinking of someone and to also give them that support or give you the support that you might need in helping them heal. Uh, so one of the pieces that we do as a, as a Jewish community that's very different from, from having that kind of, and we were just talking about this a few weeks ago, like the iconography of whether it's actual Jesus or a cross, right. Of, of having something to hold on to that's, that's, um, that's personified that we really focus on the interpersonal relationship. And even if you do go to a grave, that's really you focusing inward rather than you expecting that person to, to somehow from the grave uh, be able to um, influence you in some way from, from the dead. So I, I just think that's a very powerful part of, of Judaism that, I often say, I think the rabbis did a lot of things wrong, but they did a lot of things right when it comes to uh, when it comes to ritual around death and and weddings and all kinds of different life cycles. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, one of the things in Judaism is there's always this tension between, I think, the more rationalist and the sort of more mystical traditions, you know, Robert's comment, because Maimonides is very not, very opposed to the, any anything of this sort, going to graves, go, you know, like, right, he's very much, there is one God, you worship God directly. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's, there are all kinds, you know, the sort of the more mystical traditions, there's even this idea that, you know, you're allowed to ask your friend to pray for you, so, like, if you could ask your friend to pray for you, like, why can't you ask your deceased parent or grandparent to pray for you? Right. You know, like, what's what's the big difference? You know, there's this idea that all of Israel is connected to one another. Um, and so, like, perhaps, right, and this might be the differentiation between, you know, the machni say rachamin that we say in slicho, which is to angels. And it's like, well, it, angel, now you're getting into, like, the divine sphere. That's, that's um, you know problematic perhaps but if you're you know if you're saying to you know you're going to your gravestone to see a a parent and saying you know mom i'm having a really hard time with all this can you just you know ask god to help me out here you know is that is that so so different than going to a you know a living relative and asking them to pray to god on your behalf you know someone saying no there's not that much of like a clear line between like once you're dead you're dead but like you know, right? We say, their soul be bound up in the bonds of eternal life. So what does that mean? There's sort of this idea that when someone's dead, they're not, their soul's not gone. They're still sort of around in some capacity. So perhaps there is a way to just um, ask for a favor like you would ask from a friend. 
I think the Tehillim group is really interesting. I think that very often that that also is, or or if you're if you take it to after someone has passed away, you know, if you learn like Mishnayot, you know, towards someone's shloshim or something like that, which our community just did a little while ago, um, right? That there is that there are these different ways that you could be connecting through your own focus of study or through your own um, kind of intention of prayer that is somehow then connecting, whether it's towards healing or just to the soul of that person having an aliyah, right? Having um, uh, reaching God, so to speak. So I, I think that, again, I, I think that, that it's super powerful. And I think that that is something that people really connect to because it allows you to feel like that which you are saying is somehow helpful. And I would argue that I still think that's something that is communal, right? You as a community are coming together to say to Hillim, or you as a community are coming together to choose which Mishnayot you're going to do for somebody's Shloshim, um, that even if you're not studying them all together, or even if you're not, you're not saying all the Tehillim together, you know that you could bump into someone at Shul and say, how has it been for you to be saying to Hillim for such and such a person? Or um, which Mishnah are you learning for so-and-so towards his Shloshim? So... I think it's just a matter of like personal connection to this idea of, of how you find connection without being redundant to, to a person who has died, whether it's a person that, you know, as Rory Pernick said, or a person that you didn't know. We got really deep real fast. Does anybody have any comments? I'm going to say. <laughs> or thoughts. I mean, there's one thing that I'll, I'll just bring in, which I thought was interesting when I, when I lived in Boston, um, I often, or when I would visit Boston, I had friends who, um, who went to the synagogue in the Maimonides school, right? So Maimonides is a big modern Orthodox school in Boston, sort of the, founded by the Rav, uh, Rav Soloveitchik, who's sort of the leading modern Orthodox rabbi of the, say, the latter half of the 20th century. And, you know, when he founded the school and, and, you know, the shul that's there as well, um, and it's really interesting that when he died, they kept his stender, mm. you know, and it's sort of like wrapped there in some way, you know, it's sort of like, it's, um, and, and like his seat and all of that, it's sort of like, it's there, that's like, you know, um, that, you know, and he died, whatever, 20 something years ago. Um, but it's like there's a spot for him in the shul. And I mean, I remember the shul that I went to who was led for like by like, for like 40 or 50 years by someone who was like kind of a little, you know, half generation leader than the Rav. I remember when he died and it was like soon after I moved to the community, like immediately people came and sat where he had sat previously. <laughs> Which like in my mind was sort of like, it was this like, no, we're not, you know, we're, we're sort of like, we're not uh, almost like worshiping the dead by sort of saying, oh, this spot is off limits because this was a, or this, you know, like we're not, we're not using these physical tools as a way of connecting with these people, right? There are different ways that we talked about of connecting with saying, you know, saying Kaddish or, or so forth. Um, and there, at the same time, there's something powerful about seeing that Stender and being like, oh, that was the Rav Stender. That's where the Rav sat and died, you know? 
or going tomorrow to Machpelah, I think. And like, I know for me, the first time I went there in Hebron, you know, and I, like, I remember feeling uh, like a, a connection there that was different. But I think it's, there's something about being and being in such a place um, that and maybe it's because you're sort of you're aware of what this place is. Um, you know, but I think that there is something that is sort of like, well, you, you know, people do feel a stronger connection. So do we say, I don't care that you feel the stronger connection here that, you, you know, like whatever, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's problematic. It might lead you astray. Right. Like, um, this is like Rabbi, uh, Shai, Leibovitz used to like talk about the Kotel, you're called Discotel. And he was like, the Kotel is like an idol and it should be, knocked down and destroyed. like no one should ever go to the hotel because it's it's an idol and people are worshiping the wall rather than worshiping god kind of thing you know and there's something to be said for that like just get rid of them these they're leading people astray um and yet they people feel connection so it's yeah um renee asked sorry karen asked I think, yeah, so Renee, I think you mean Roe, but yeah, I think you're right. I think he was trying to connect just to something um, that was a higher power that was going to allow him to be, to have answers to these questions that for him are deeply rooted in living a life that he feels like is already not okay, right? Which obviously in 21st century uh, living, we would we would never have said you're having a miscarriage because of the, that kind of life that you're living. Uh, and I think he was looking for answers, whereas she's just praying that she's going to have a healthy baby. Rifki, is that her name? Sure. Uh, and then Karen said, was it kosher to touch? Oh, <laughs> I hadn't read the first thing. I think my kosher touched the tomb. Was it kosher for the two of them to touch? A kosher. Like, what does kosher mean? No, I mean, no, they were not supposed to touch. He's married. He at least is Shomer Nagia. It's unclear if she is. Um, it doesn't seem like she is because she seems to be hugging uh, the poet guy. Uh, I think she was very calmed by the hand holding. Yeah. I- I think that there's that there is something that we've seen throughout this entire series. I think there is this tension that the producers and directors are playing with of had he kept to himself and not allowed her to like show him that comfort, would he have felt as comforted? Well, if you're actually Sherman Aguia, you're not going to get comfort in those ways by someone who's not your wife. And if you aren't Sherman Aguia, then you might be, you know, comforted in other ways by somebody. And, and that wouldn't have been the only way. So I think it's just a, a mixing of, of signals here that we're playing with throughout this entire series. Right. There's a lot of stuff there. Right. Her inviting him up wasn't kosher. Him coming up wasn't kosher. Yeah, I was actually really, like, I was surprised. I love that we're using the word kosher. Um, I, it was, I was really surprised that they didn't show us that the door was open or not. Because inviting him up is kosher, no matter what hexer you use. He can come upstairs. He just can't be in a room with her alone. Right. It's not ideal. It's not, not ideal. ideal. It's like going to a vegan restaurant without it. It's like going to a vegan restaurant without a hexer. It's it's like no, not ideal, but it's better than going to a trafe restaurant. But about each sure, there's lots of things that aren't that are not kosher, but are not the most unkosher. That is correct. Yes. 
Okay, Rabbi Barbara. No, because what I was what I was thinking when I saw what Karen wrote, I think it was Karen. Yeah, was that they have a very deep relationship. Yeah, she knows his deepest, darkest secret mm-hmm. that even his wife doesn't know, and clearly, he went to her house. Mm-hmm. Her new house. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to get there and he knew where he was going. And and I think that his purpose is he wanted to talk to somebody who really understood him. For sure. You know, and sure, whether how do you know, you know where to go? I didn't even think about that part. I know. Because they talked about it. Does she not live there? No, she lives there. But, but then, that was like the place she moved to. Was, isn't that the new place? That's what I thought. That's what, yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> How did he know where to go? That's okay. Yeah. You can write know. to the director. One of those little details, but what I'm saying, I just think that not only was it a relief for Root to let go of her anger about um, the poet, but, and probably some of her anger about his situation too, but it was also a relief for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an opportunity for him to come back to earth mm-hmm. and realize that he wasn't the person who, um, this horrible person that caused all these miscarriages. And- mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at, Robert Pernick can speak much more to this as a person who lives in that world, um, much more than, than I do. But I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I often wonder for, for someone who is going to be in relationships with people, whether of the same gender or of the opposite gender is how do you kind of decide how do you decide those boundaries, right? How do you decide this is not a person and like sexuality aside for just one second, how do you decide that I'm going to allow, you know, this deep friendship connection, all the things that you said, be something that allows me to be close to this person without concern? Or do you recognize that the law is saying no matter how you feel platonically or not about this person, they're the opposite gender and you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, I think that's, that is probably, again, it's not a struggle for me in my life because not the kind of life that I live, but I, I do assume that for people who live a life of being Shomer Nagia, who have friends who are not and, and find much comfort in those friends who do not keep the same laws, that that's, that that is a hard boundary of, of how to kind of show a similar compassion, whether you need it or they need it. Uh, without becoming uncomfortable for the laws that you're holding by. Did you want to say anything? You don't have to, but I I think it's a hard boundary either direction, right? Like so much is about setting up boundaries for people who are in terminal or not setting boundaries who aren't. Right. So there's, everyone has their own boundaries and sometimes they're like, well, I wish I had stricter boundaries or tougher boundaries because then I wouldn't have allowed this to happen. So, right. So I think, you know, Halakha is one boundary, but I think in everyone's lives, there's, you know, some setting and lack of setting of boundaries and, and crossing of boundaries that you thought you said and so forth. I think it's just sort of a, a nature of human relationships. 
Yeah, Robert. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, I just I just wanted to mention that I just it showed um, the level of trust between uh, Roe and uh, what's her name? Uh, Rayut. I know Rivki. Yeah. No, Rayut. Rayut. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that they were so close. Uh, so I was surprised uh, for a second that you know she was inviting him upstairs, but to the apartment. But you know it was the level of trust that uh, you know we have to recognize. Yeah. I mean, but they also had a romantic relationship. So, well, I don't know. Like, it's, oh, that's was, true. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, it's not, right? I mean, and I think, right, normally we would say, oh, they should have met at a coffee shop or something. But, like, he's married. So, like, right? There, in some ways, there was no, like, snew, like, there was no modest way to, like, go talk to his ex-girlfriend when he's married. Like, you can talk to people once you're married. Not in, in that. If you're ultra, if you're Haredi and married, to go talk to your ex girlfriend, mm, not really. Like, there's not in a public a, place. What? No, Why? no. It's you don't talk because I think people typically don't talk to women in the social settings. Meaning, if it's if you have a therapist who's female, that's one thing. But to, I mean, but is he that socially, from? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I mean, is he? If I mean, he's. Yeah, I would say so. I think in the Orthodox world in general, it, it would be looked at as strange if you're married and then out socially with a woman who's a contemporary, who's not, who, who you're out socially with. Like, that's kind of unusual. and would be. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. I have to go in a second, but there's a great note to end on. Yeah. Oh, okay, if you... If not you, I won't, I won't throw you under the bus. If one of our friends was married and they happened to be in Los Angeles and I wanted to get coffee with them because they're my friend just because now they're married that would be frowned upon I mean if people saw them who knew them and we were like that's not his wife and it's clearly a social outing yeah I think so in the (laughs) firm world for sure yeah okay I, that's that is shocking to me in the 21st century like the people can be friends especially in a world in which you you could have i mean roe was is a good example of this roe had a very different um religious life before he was married to this woman right so mm-hmm. especially in today's world where you have no idea what the history was before you met your partner you might have tons of friends that just because you're now married to someone, like you're not trusted enough to just go to get, have coffee or have lunch with another person in a public space. And that seems silly. I mean, I think it's kind of, I think often people will go out in groups or it's sort of, Oh, you know, we'll go out with the, you know, the three of us or the, you know, but yeah, I think it would be definitely uncommon for someone to go out with, like go out socially with a female friend if they're, married to someone else i think if, if especially if they're in the community where people know them that would raise a lot of eyebrows for sure well Welcome on that me. really exciting <laughs> note i'm gonna go and disagree with you <laughs> no more than i ever have before um but uh it was lovely to see you all and i'm sorry that i have to go and i'm sure that Rai pernick will continue this lovely conversation <laughs> or any decide, other conversation you want you can decide whether i'm right or he's right yeah okay Bye-bye. Bye-bye, show. She has to go. I'm still here, though. Yeah, any other... 
Any thoughts? Um, I mean, that or other things. Uh, so, I mean, also oh, Rachel asked also in a firm community, do, do many people have many close friends of the opposite sex? I mean, yes. I mean, I think that's basically the same. I mean, a related question. I think often couples, right? There's couple friendships that like, we are friends with this couple. And, but I think in a firm community, typically there someone who's, again, there's like sort of like the Srugim set of people of like young singles who are friendly and friends with one another. But I think when, when people get married, it's sort of, and this is what I was saying and she was disagreeing with, but um, it's sort of like young singles but can hang out and like young couples or families hang out. But for someone who's married to then go out with a single friend or to go out solely with a, you know, with the wife in a couple that your couple friends with, like that would sort of be, I would say, unusual in the firm world. I think even like, not like just in the Haredi world, I mean, even in the modern Orthodox world, so that would be, that would be unusual. Yeah. I, I just think he was so upset and the subject was something he could not talk to anyone else about. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Anyone else. And I think it was out of friendship and comfort. That Absolutely. And that's why I'm saying, I, I think it was sort of, he needed, right. He, he needed to be reassured and comforted. He knew she was the person to do that. And right. This is how sort of how the conversation started. Like, there wasn't any socially appropriate way for him to do so. Um, he couldn't give her a call and say, hey, can we go out for coffee? Because if someone saw him with her, they would be like, wait, that's not his wife. Like, what's going on here? Right. So it was sort of like he basically said, I, you know what, I'm just going to go to her apartment and get reassured there in a way that's not kosher, quote unquote, because essentially there was no kosher way for him to go approach her. You know, so he was sort of, he was in a bind. And I think ultimately got reassured in the ways he was seeking um, and sort of made that decision in the moment of, you know what, I, I know this isn't halakhically acceptable, but, but I need to talk to someone who gets me, you know. And they didn't have to touch, though. They didn't have to touch. <laughs> Once you've crossed that line, now, who, you know, what, what other lines, you know. Wait a minute. He, yeah. he put his yeah. hand. He put, he, his, his hand was on the table. Yeah. He, yes. not from the same, took his hand. He did not respond right away. He thought about it. He looked at that. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So yeah. then and he didn't he pull it away either, Karen. What? He didn't pull it away. That's I, true. No, no. Both, both is correct. Which he should have done. I thought about that he would do that, but he really needed connection, I guess. I won't tell on him. I mean, it's hard. I think, for you know, where he is, he's sort of, he's repressing this part of himself in his, in the life that he's leading here. You know, he had that mentor before, but that guy kind of fell away and went off direct to some extent. So like, he doesn't have that kind of mentor relationship. He doesn't have a therapist to, you know, like he doesn't have that person who sort of played that role in his life, but she's now an ex-girlfriend. So he, he's kind of stuck. Um, so you feel for him because he doesn't have anyone to talk to about these things. You know, it's really hard. Except Nati. Except Nati, but I mean, he doesn't talk to Nati about those things, I think, as well. Um, oh, and yeah, Rachel's talking about how um, that conversation was healing to Ru. I think, 
Yeah, I think that was that was a really nice. I mean, it was, it's a little bit of a sad conversation, but I think it was a really it was it felt like a healing conversation. I think you're right that this was healing for him to feel like I'm not a terrible person. And I think it was healing for her, even if the healing part was sort of getting back together and seeing him and rem- being sort of reminded of what like a a nice pure soul is like. And it was sort of like, oh, this guy <laughs> Azaria is like. I wasn't actually interested in him, you know, like it, it sort of allowed her to to tap back into those feelings she had for Rui and realize she didn't really have any of that for Azaria. It was more of like a celebrity crush, you know? Um, I, yeah. I mean, I thought, I mean, right. This was a, this was a great Nazi moment um, in that, right. He asked Nazi to go bring her some food. And Nati ended up hanging out with her and spending time with her. And like, right. So I think that was a, like, this was a great Nati moment where Nati, as mean as Nati is to his brother, you see the love that he has for him and the way he's taking care of him. And so, and, you know, lying about what, you know, where his brother is and so forth. And she knows that he is, but she, she sort of knows that he's doing it from a place of caring for, for a wee. So there were a lot of things there where it's like, you're crossing lines, he's lying, you know, but, but it was sort of from this kind of sweet, innocent kind of place, um, which was, which was nice. We definitely do see not to be a mensch. We know he has it within him. You know, he has his issues with his brother, but we didn't, you know how much he loves his brother. You know, you can see that's why he cares so much. And I thought it was very touching when he kind of covered up, not knowing where Roe was, mm-hmm. not, not saying, oh, I don't know where he is, but saying, oh, I sent him home to get some sleep. Mm-hmm. But whatever Roe was dealing with, Nadi was covering for him, providing mm-hmm. cover for that in a way that to me felt generous. Yeah, I mean, and then he told the story about the dog house and sleeping in the dog house, and she was like, "I know you never had a dog ha- a dog growing up." Still, sweet, you know. It's like I know you're not telling the truth here, but like, you know, she wasn't mad about it though. It was like it was a great, it's a nice story though, right? So, oh. I think you know she 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 knew that he was covering for his brother, and yet it was sort of like, "I'm okay with this. I know you're not telling the truth, but that's okay." Um, so. But I agree, Barbara. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, you do, we do end up with where we've never actually seen Nati interact with sister in law before. And I think, you, end, you know, you see this sort of, as much as Sugim often ends on like a sad note, there's like, there is that positive, I mean, it comes from a place of sadness, but you see sort of that familial connection and, you know, that closeness there. Um, and like as much as there's messed up relationships kind of all around, like there is that deeper love connection underneath it as much as Nati's mean to his brother, as much as, you know, as all this stuff is going on. And I think when you see Rowie come back, you see Rowie wasn't looking for, you know, a romantic relationship from Root. He, right. He's not leaving his wife. He, it was, he just needed that reassurance. And, and when he comes back, it, you feel like, you know, he wasn't like cheating on her, even like emotionally. I think he, it was more, she, he was going to his therapist as it were. Um, just, you know, happens to be his ex-girlfriend. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.